I'm Glenn People saying welcome once more to another episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Gosh, episode four, that's almost halfway to episode ten. I want to say a big thanks to the small but growing listener base out there. Uh, if you're listening, thank you. Please feel free to make yourself known to me, so drop me a line if you like at podcast at beretta-online.com. You can also go to the iTunes store where this podcast is listed and leave a review if you like. Bear in mind, though, I'm in New Zealand, and I don't know if you realize this, but the iTunes store is set up in such a way that when you visit it, you're actually visiting a localized version of it. So if someone, say, in New Zealand writes a review of your podcast and you're in America, uh, and from America you can't read it because it's actually a different iTunes store and vice versa. But if you do write a review, let me know that you did. Um, anyway, episode four, and this time there's something a little bit different in store from the last few shows, as I indicated last time. I've decided to call this main section of the show today, Parodying Plato, because that's what you're going to hear. It's a parody of a famous section from Plato's dialogue, which is called the Euthyphro. I'm going to start out by giving you a bit of background on what you're about to hear so that it makes sense to those who aren't familiar with the Euthyphro already. In ethical theory as well as in philosophy of religion, the question comes up as to what the relationship is between the moral duties that we have and the will of God. In particular, there's a group of theories that can be referred to as divine command theories of ethics. They're also sometimes called theological voluntarism or divine will based theories of ethics. And basically, they present the view that moral rightness is that which accords with the command or will of God, and moral wrongness is that which is forbidden by the commands or will of God. There has been something of a revival in this outlook since the latter part of the 20th century. It it kicked off in the very early 70s, and there have been some brilliant works of philosophy, both uh, long book-length works and shorter articles written in defense of these positions. Philip Quinn, uh, Robert Mary Hugh Adams, those are probably the best two authors to look up if you're interested in knowing more and, and beginning to get familiar with it. However, some people think that divine command ethics are a dead-end street and that they were crushed thousands of years ago by a famous passage in Plato's Euthyphro. Now, this isn't exactly what Socrates, who's the speaker in in this dialogue, said, but the challenge in its modern form is adapted from what Socrates said in this dialogue. And the challenge is, but does God command things because they are right, or are they right because God commands them? I'm not going to go through the literature now and explain how this is answered, but If you're at all familiar with the literature, you'll know that it has been answered in spades. But when this sceptical challenge comes up in the lecture theatre, 
it is sometimes, perhaps even most of the time, unfortunately, presented as the last word, uh, in spite of how old it is, and the many treatments of divine command ethics that have been published um, in recent decades are just ignored. And I was a bit fed up with this state of affairs, so among other things I decided to write a new version of this part of the dialogue, the famous part that everyone refers to. It follows the original version very closely in terms of the subjects covered, but it allows Euthyphro, who was the loser in Plato's version of the dialogue, but the winner in my version, it allows Euthyphro to be someone better informed than the bumbling victim that Plato presented the reader with all those centuries ago. So, without any further ado, I present to you a new Euthyphro. It is my contention that what is generally construed as the Euthyphro dilemma as a reason to deny that moral facts are based on theological ones is one of the worst arguments proposed in the philosophy of religion or ethical theory, and that Socrates, the character of the dialogue who poses the dilemma, was both morally bankrupt in his challenge to Euthyphro, but more importantly here, he ought to have lost the argument hands down. But in any dialogue, the author controls what people say. Plato was able to easily give Socrates the victory by writing the end of the story himself, where Euthyphro, believing that piety is what the gods approve of, loses the argument abysmally. The version of events presented here is different. This time, Euthyphro is permitted to offer a reasonable defense of his position, and he has the benefit of having been able to read all that has been said on the Euthyphro dilemma over the last couple of millennia, and especially the last fifty years or so. Under such circumstances, Socrates does not stand a chance. We arrive at our scene, the steps of the Dunedin High Court in Dunedin, New Zealand, on a cool midwinter July morning, 2008. Why, Socrates, what brings you to court today? Are you hounding someone for money? No, this is no lawsuit of mine. I'm accused of a crime. What? You? Who's accusing you of a crime? A young man at the University of Otago named Miletus. Do you know him? No, I'm afraid I don't. What's he accusing you of? Hate speech, which shows that he's obviously a very wise young man. We have to nip people who think the wrong way in the bud, you know. He says he knows the danger of us thinkers speaking our minds and influencing people's opinions. If he keeps this up, he will be very good for society. He may even make the UN Security Council. Well, not to worry, Socrates. I'm sure you will successfully defend yourself. I think I will be successful as well. You have business in the court? Is somebody after you as well? Oh, no, far from it. I'm prosecuting someone for a crime. Oh, and who is it? Actually, he's my father. You're what? What on earth is wrong with you? You shouldn't accuse family members of crimes. But he committed the crime. So what? He's your father. Cover it up, man. Are you serious? Socrates? He murdered somebody. Oh, he did, did he? What a wise and all-knowing person you must be to presume to bring this against him all the same. Oh, look at me. I'm Euthyphro. I'm accusing my father of murder. He better have murdered somebody important for you to be doing such an outrageous thing. Did he kill your mother? No. Your brother? No. Well, was he a family member at all then? I mean, gosh. No, no, not at all, Socrates. This is disturbing. 
I can't believe that you would make a distinction between murdering a family member and murdering someone who is not related to you. All that matters is that my father unjustly killed a man. If a person has been killed justly, like in self-defense or war or capital punishment, then fine. But if a man unjustly takes the life of another, then even if he is your father, you have a duty to see that justice is done. Oh, how ridiculously quaint of you, Euthyphro! So who was this man your father killed? Well, I, I don't pretend that he was a particularly good man. He was a poor man who worked for me. One day, at the end of the day, while the employees were all getting drunk, he got into a brawl with one of my servants. And this man won, killing the servant. So my father flew into a rage and tied him hand and foot. He threw him into a ditch and left him for a few days while he went to ask the police what he should do about it. This man died, well, a slow death of hunger and exposure. You're testifying against your father for killing a loser like that? That's exactly what the rest of my family said too, Socrates. They think it is impious. It is morally wrong for me to prosecute my father. Just goes to show what they know about morality. <laughs> I suppose you think you know better, to the point where you would risk accusing your father. Yes, of course. I know more than most, I dare say. <laughs> then I am in luck. I dare not say that I am as wise as you are, so I suppose the best I can do is learn from you. Let's waste no time. Tell me the nature of piety and impiety. What are those things? Well, for one thing, piety involves doing just what I am doing now. Choosing to prosecute a man who is a murderer, even if he is my father. Well, that's a start, but it's not really what I asked for. You said that prosecuting a murderer is pious. That's right. But I don't just want to know which acts are pious. After all, there are other acts that are pious, aren't there? Yes, there are. Well, we don't have time for you to list them all, so I ask not which acts are pious, but what is piety itself? Tell me what piety is, so that I will know the standard by which all acts are deemed pious or impious. I see what you mean. All right, then, I'll tell you. I'm waiting. Piety is the quality of doing what God wills. Impiety is the quality of doing what God wills against. Excellent, Euthyphro. That is what I was looking for. Now, let's see if your answer is acceptable. As you wish. Euthyphro, when we humans make judgments about things like measurements of distance, for example, we might disagree with each other sometimes, right? Yes, sometimes. Right. And when we disagree, we can resolve the disagreement by appealing to a measuring device like a tape measure, can we not? Yes, we can and do. And if we disagree about weight, we can appeal to a set of scales. Correct. So if we disagree about moral issues like, say, whether an act is pious or not, the answer lies in whether or not God wills us to do it. Right. That is exactly what I meant. <laughs> then I have you already, Euthyphro. How so? I'm afraid you've lost me. Well, you'll admit, won't you, that the gods disagree and fight with each other about what is pious and what is not. So you cannot appeal to their judgment because they disagree as much as we do about other things, and so they must have recourse to a higher standard. Socrates, that's absurd. I'm a monotheist. A what? A monotheist. I don't believe in many gods, just one. And he doesn't disagree with himself. You don't believe in the gods? No, only one. But, Euthyphro, my goodness, not only does that mean you're nearly an atheist, it means that my rebuttal doesn't apply at all. You're quite right, Socrates, it doesn't apply, but I'm hardly an atheist. You simply believe in many gods who are not, on their own, sovereign over all things. Whereas I believe in something that you do not, a god who is sovereign over all, 
who holds all things together and who has no competitors. So this means it would do no good to try to reduce you to absurdity by saying that since the gods themselves will different things, and since you think that which is pious is that which the gods will, and what is impious is that which the gods will against, you are thereby committed to the view that some actions are both pious and impious. Well, you might have said that if I were a polytheist, and if I also believed that the gods disagreed with each other, but... As it is, you can't use that argument. So it would seem. So then, piety is the quality of doing what God wills, and impiety is the quality of doing what God wills against, and not the gods. That's what I said before. Right then. Let's start afresh now that this view of piety is clear. Since this is the 21st century, let us dispense with talk of piety. Can we instead talk about the right thing to do? Let's do that. Very good. I'd like you to explain something for me, Euthyphro. Does God will us to do things because they are right, or are things right because God wills us to do them? Can you elaborate? Well, what God wills is right, right? Yes, that's right. So, does God will things because they are right? Why has our subject changed so quickly? Whatever do you mean, Euthyphro? We're talking about what makes actions right. Well, clearly we are now, but we weren't a few moments ago. You started by asking me what piety is, which we have agreed to call rightness. But telling you that rightness is the quality of being that which God commands just isn't the same as telling you that things are right because God commands them. Most excellent, Euthyphro, like a true philosopher, you have caught me changing the type of question I began with. Indeed. I said that rightness is the quality of being willed by God. We talk this way about other things. For example, the morning star is the evening star, because it is the same thing. That it is. But once we have announced that fact, we would think a man very odd who tried to put us on the spot by saying, Ah, friend, but is it the morning star because it is the evening star, or is it the evening star because it is the morning star? Odd am I. <laughs> Why, Socrates, it's only nine in the morning on a winter's day, but I would swear that you are blushing. Euthyphro, my young friend, I had anticipated a much easier route to success than this. At every turn you tell me that I have not represented your position well at all. I fear saying another word lest I get myself into further trouble. Then, Socrates, you may be the philosopher and I will be the gentleman. Let us say that the subject has not changed very much. Instead of talking about what piety is as we first began to, let's say that I believe in a relationship of causation between God and piety, for it sounds like this is what you want to talk about. You are too kind to an old man, and a true friend of a philosopher. <laughs> Let me pose my question again. I'm trying to see if you think that God is the moral authority, or if you think something else is. Does God will things because they are right? I think I see what you mean. Yes, you now see that you must say that God wills things because they are right. And since you must say this, you must accept that rightness is prior to God's will. So you haven't really told me what rightness is at all. Well, no. Actually, my answer is no. Your answer to what? To your question. Does God will things because they are right? My answer is no. You mean you think things are right be because... That's right. Things are right because God wills them. But I was trying to get you to admit that your view committed you to saying that rightness was prior to God's will. I suppose you can't say that then, since my view is that God's will causes things to be right. 
So your view is that God could just will anything and that would make it right? So if God willed that you should torture people, then that would be right? Well, you've asked two different questions there, and they each have a different answer. Oh, and who's the philosopher now? Why, you are Socrates, and that is why you are willing to make any distinction that is necessary to avoid misrepresenting me. Right you are. Explain this distinction, then. I will. You asked, firstly, if God could command just anything. Next, you asked what would follow if God did command something, namely torture. Let's look at the second question first. I'd love to hear your answer. My answer is that it would be right to engage in torture if God willed it. This is horrible, Euthyphro! Yes, it is horrible. Yet you take it to be good philosophy? I do indeed. Let's sit down over there for a while. Look, here's what I mean. Yes, it would be terrible to torture people and to think of God willing us to rape babies, but that is only true in this world. In this world? What on earth are you babbling about? Well, I believe that God created this world. I'm with you so far. And I believe that if God had chosen to, he could have made the world differently. Agreed? Yes, I suppose he could have. Now, what I was getting at is this. Since God made this world, a world in which he does not will that we torture people, the way he made this world reflects his will, including the way he created you and me. This includes our intuitive sense of moral outrage at those acts, and it also includes the natural consequences of those acts, the things that torture causes. Do you mean that if God had created a different world, those features of ourselves and of the consequences of torture might be different? They certainly could be. No doubt. But look at what you have appealed to. Euthyphro, you were trying to say that actions are right because God commands them, but now you seem to be saying that something like torture is right or wrong, depending on the effect that it has on us, which means that God deems it wrong because it is independently wrong, regardless of whether he commanded it or forbade it. No, Socrates, you are assuming too much. But before I pursue that argument, I would like to finish the present argument. We'll call this new argument of yours the independent argument, and I promise we will come back to it soon. Very well, I will wait. Thank you. Now, you said two things previously, that my view means that God could command just anything, and that if God commanded torture, it would be right. I did say that. I think I have affirmed the latter already, but I have suggested that the horrid things you suggest that God might command, like torture, are only horrendous in worlds where God forbids them. Even if I have not shown this, you will certainly admit, as you have, that this is possibly true. Whether it is true or not, I am not sure, but yes, there can be no doubt that it is possibly true. But I doubt that it is true. And why is that? I doubt it, because it seems to me that if something had consequences so different from torture in this world that it was not wrong, then it would be a kind of word game to call it torture at all. It wouldn't be torturous. Well said. In fact, I accept that. I was only trying to show that it is at least conceivable that what is wrong and horrendous in this world might not be so in other worlds, but I too doubt that something like torture would be permissible in other worlds. Oh, then let us say that your doubts and mine are well-founded. Instead of saying that we doubt that torture could be permissible, let us say, even though we accept that it could be permissible in other worlds, that it is not permissible in any world. Since I accept that this might be true, very well. Let us say that it is true. 
Then you are in a rather difficult position, Euthyphro. How can you entertain the thought that such things could not be permissible, and yet you say that whatever God commands is not only permissible, but right? Well, you said that my view commits me to the claim that God could command just anything. Absolutely. But my position doesn't lead to that claim at all. I said that things are right because God commands them. That has nothing to do with what God can command. But you're a monotheist, and according to you, God is all-powerful, is he not? Yes, he is. So then how could you be willing to say that there are some things God cannot command? Because I do not worship the God of the philosophers without a face, like some people. <clears throat> the God who is all-powerful also has a character. He has a particular nature. And what does this qualification achieve? Will a man commit slander when he loves the person that he is to speak of? And he has no inclination whatsoever to speak ill of him? No, of course not. And will a person eat a food that he utterly despises, and which makes him nauseous even to look at? No, he will not. In fact, if the only causal factors are the man's will and desire, could he eat it if he hates it and has no reason to eat it? If those were the only causal factors, then no, I suppose he couldn't. Yet, the metaphysical possibility would still exist, but he could not bring himself to do it. Yes, that seems right. So the fact that he could not, does not impugn his power of choice? No, I would think not. Then we have found our answer. God cannot command that which he hates, even though it is within his power. Whatever God commands is right. And torture could never be right, because God would never command it, nor would his character, his nature, and his desire permit him to. For example, and others could be given, if God is benevolent, then he does not command that which is repugnant to benevolence. Euthyphro, you have done well. I accept, then, that your view does not imply that God could command just anything and it would become right. But in finding this answer, we have gone back to another problem for you. And what problem is that? It is the problem that I have agreed to wait for to discuss. You called it the independence argument. In order to get away from the view that God obeys another moral law beside himself, you said that whatever God commands is right. Yes, that is what I said. But now look what you have done to escape the problem with that view. When I say that this would mean that God could command terrible things like torture, you say that he could not because he could not condone something as evil as torture. And you are back where I accused you of being before, because you must now say that God really does follow a moral law above himself, a law that forbids torture, and God dutifully obeys that law by never commanding torture. Why, Socrates, how quickly words change their meaning in your hands. Never, my good friend. This is the plain path that reason draws us down. Not so. I have not denied that God has his reasons for commanding as he does. But this does not mean that we must say that God is under a moral law outside of himself. What is this strange and marvelous philosophy? Explain, Euthyphro. Let me make sure that I understand your objection, Socrates, so that when I have explained myself, you will not complain that I have responded to an argument that you did not make. Please do. I have said that God has reasons for commanding and forbidding as he does. I have also said that the reason that actions are right is that God commands them, and the reason actions are wrong is that God forbids them. This much is clear to us both. Very good. And you think that this means that the reason that an action is right 
is actually the reason that God has for commanding it. And the reason that an action is wrong is actually the reason that God has for forbidding it. So that God's commands do not change what is right and wrong. As those reasons exist, whether God commands or not, and whether he forbids or not. You have understood me well. That is just the objection I have. Then I think you are not yourself today. For in many other situations you do not reason like this at all, and nor should you ever. Socrates, tell me, are you married? <laughs> my good man, I am a philosopher. Wisdom makes a man miserable, and no woman could bear my company continually. Well then, am I married? I think it's strange that you should ask me, but yes, you know that you are. Let us say then that my wife is angry with me. Why? Is she angry with you? No, everything's fine. But let us imagine what it would be like if she were. As you wish. In fact, let us imagine that she is so angry with me that she phones me up while I am in the pub with my friends and asks me to come home. Why would an angry wife do that, Euthyphro? Her motive in doing that is that she wants to argue with me when I get home. Oh dear, Euthyphro, are you sure everything is all right? It's a story, Socrates, and nothing more. Now, let us say that I'm in a good mood, and I am not at all upset with my wife, and because I love her and I wish to please her, I agree to go home. Now tell me, Socrates, what is the reason that my wife wants me to go home? Is it not so that she can argue with me? Yes, you said so. I did. And what is the reason that I am going home? Is it not because my wife asked me to? Certainly. So my reason for going home is not that my wife wants to argue with me. By no means, friend. On the contrary, that may be a reason not to go home. So my wife's reasons for asking me to go home are not the reasons that I would go home. Indeed not. Then likewise... God's reasons for commanding are not my reasons for obeying. By the gods, you have laid me a snare. No, Socrates, you've laid yourself a snare. You have convinced yourself now that if God has reasons for commanding, those reasons are not what make it right for us to do the things that God commands. And his commands alone may serve that purpose. And so we may say that an action is right if God commands it, and an action is wrong if God forbids it. And this does not mean that God can make just anything right. And in avoiding this charge, we do not make rightness independent of God's commands. Euthyphro, this was much easier back in Athens. And so we leave our two friends Socrates has discovered that when he steps out of Plato's dialogue and into mine, things turn out rather differently for him. While general textbooks or collections of readings or university course texts and undergraduate classes in ethics around the world make passing references to the famous Euthyphro Dilemma, as though it is a perpetual embarrassment to theologically grounded ethics, they are successful only because and if they attempt to place the reader in the unfortunate position that Euthyphro was once in. In the first place, philosophically unresourceful and not particularly reflective. And secondly, shielded from the responses to the supposed dilemma that have since been published. It might be answered in turn 
that all I have done is to provide you, Thephro, with the answers that Socrates did not have access to, and so I did not give him the chance to offer a rebuttal. This is true. However, my point here has not been that there are no further arguments that Socrates could have marshalled against the coherence or plausibility of theologically grounded ethics. My point is that the arguments that Socrates did use cannot simply be reprinted or repeated to a class as though they are respectable arguments, and could very easily have been answered by a better informed Euthyphro. And yet, they are simply reprinted and repeated to classes around the world as though they were adequate. As I type this, I have sitting on my desk a course text from my own university, where the dilemma is presented as a crippling argument against theologically grounded ethics. Likewise, Peter Singer's Practical Ethics went into print in its second edition, claiming that divine command ethics were annihilated by Plato in the Euthyphro. A simple internet search will reveal dozens of examples of lecturers in ethics, professional philosophers, at universities worldwide who appeal to the power of this dilemma as a crushing defeater of theologically grounded ethics. Qualified philosophers just are ignoring what has been said about the dilemma in the literature over the centuries, and especially the last century. For this reason alone, I submit this alternative outcome to the dialogue as one that far better displays the actual merits of Socrates' argument, which are simply unimpressive. <laughs> And there you have it. Last time I said that I would be also saying a thing or two about the problem of evil in this episode. But that dialogue that you just heard ended up being a little longer than I expected, but it was worth it. So the problem of evil will have to wait for now. What I can give you, however, is... That's right, it's time again for This Week in History. Beginning with June the 8th, 793, that's the traditional date, Vikings attack the monastery at Lindisfarne in Scotland. This date is often considered the first event of the Viking Age. June the 8th, 1794, French revolutionaries replace Christianity in France with a deistic religion, honouring a trinity of liberty, equality and fraternity. Not quite the Trinity, more of a tritheism, actually. They renamed churches Temples of Reason, and a new calendar announced a ten-day week and holidays commemorating events of the revolution. The reign of terror followed, with some 1,400 people losing their heads. Ten-day week, well, that really caught on, didn't it? June the 8th, 1987. New Zealand's Labour government bans nuclear weapons from New Zealand waters. While Prime Minister David Lange was content to ban only nuclear weapons, more radical voices in the party, including our current Prime Minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark, would only support the decision if nuclear-powered vessels were also banned, driven in part by anti-American sentiment. This meant that American warships, regardless of their weapons, were permanently banned from New Zealand waters, as most of them were nuclear-powered. June the 9th, 68 AD, or AD 68, I should say, Nero Claudius Caesar, the ruler, ruler to whom the Apostle Paul appealed for justice in Acts 25, and who ordered the first imperial persecution of Christians, 
probably, incidentally, being the object of reference for the biblical number 666 and the so-called beast associated with it, commits suicide, imploring his secretary Epaphroditus to slit his throat to evade a Senate-imposed death penalty by flogging. Ouch. Nero's wife, Claudia Octavia, died on the same date in AD 62. During the night, 1978, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's the Mormons, changes its policy on black men. What policy on black men, you say? Well, up until that date, their religious convictions about the cause of black skin, namely a punishment from God, led to a ban on black men serving as priests. Their new policy became that all worthy men, that's a quote, could become priests. Interestingly, the church never dropped its belief about the moral cause of dark skin, which would suggest that they don't view black men as worthy after all. But you'd be amazed at what public pressure can do to a church's consistency. June 10th, 1692. Bridget Bishop becomes the first of 19 suspected witches hanged during the now-notorious Salem Witch Trials. Her charges read as follows. Certain detestable arts called witchcraft and sorceries. June 10th, 1940, on this blackest of days in modern history. World War II, Italy declares war on the UK. US President Franklin D. Roosevelt denounced Italy's actions in his now famous stab in the back speech. German forces reach the English Channel. Canada declares war on Italy and Norway surrenders to German troops all on June 10th, 1940. Other events related to World War II also occurred on June 10th in later years, many of which do not bear mentioning here. June 13th, 1525. German reformer Martin Luther marries Catherine von Bora. Sixteen years his junior, good man, having sneaked her and other, other nuns out of their Cistercian convent, very naughty, in empty herring barrels two years earlier. Many viewed the marriage, which lasted 21 happy years, as a scandal. June 14th, 1777. Stars and Stripes, the flag Stars and Stripes, is adopted by the U.S. Congress as the official flag of the United States. June 14th, 1466. The Vatican announces that its Index of Prohibited Books, created in 1557 by the Congregation of the Inquisition under Pope Paul IV, no longer carried the force of ecclesiastical law. That's in 1966. But the announcement made it clear that the index remains moral force. Sorry, retains moral force. I won't go back and change that. It's too late in the night. So the church won't excommunicate you for owning them, but you'd better remember them when you go to confession. June 15, 1752. Benjamin Franklin proves that lightning is electricity. And on that note, that's all I have to say about that. And it's that time once again for the blog roundup. Uh, first up, I noticed today at the blog of the Biblical Archaeological Review that a number of Hebrew texts are about to be made available online. And sure enough, a bit of searching around reveals, thanks to the link in their story, a story over at the site of Haaretz, which is a uh, Jewish or Israeli newspaper, which means the land, uh, an article that confirms, and I quote now, 
Thousands of Jewish religious and other texts in Hebrew will be made available online for the first time by Bar Ilan University as part of an initiative sponsored by President Shimon Peres. The texts, which will be accessible via a special search engine, will be funded by donations raised by Peres. Uh, quoting from him now, Barilan University seems like the most worthy place to found the Jewish digital bookstand, Perez said on Monday. University officials estimated that the database dubbed the Jewish digital bookstand will be up and running within a year. End quote. Uh, now that's going to be a fantastic resource for students of biblical studies who want to get fast access to texts that I've had difficulty accessing in the past. Uh, things like the Jerusalem Talmud and other things. The two catches are, firstly, that it's going to take about a year, um, and secondly, you have to be pretty competent in Hebrew by the sounds of it, because there won't be any translations into English, or at least there are none mentioned. Number two, uh, over at the blog Stuff White People Like, stuffwhitepeoplelike.com, finally there is, or apparently there has been some time, a blog to give us the definitive list of stuff that white people like and apparently no one else does their last entry on the list was children's games as adults quoting from their blog by far the easiest way to befriend a large group of white people is to organize and then participate in a game that is normally played by children unlike the practice of having their parents help with rent this activity is a pleasant reminder to white people that they have not fully severed their ties with childhood when it comes to outdoor games, the most popular ones remain kickball. The most popular one remains kickball. In fact, you might have noticed groups of white people at the park playing this game in loosely organized leagues. Though kickball is by far the most popular, if you were to suggest a game of capture the flag, red rover, British bulldog, tag, or even hide and go seek, your popularity with white people would, apparently, skyrocket. In addition, you would likely become a legend in your office. Once the game has actually been organized and you are at the event, things will pretty much just sort themselves out. White people will be so happy to be outside reliving their childhood that they will all be in a good mood. But if you want to take it up to the next level, you should have a friend show up and say to one of the white people, Excuse me, what are you people doing? You people? How do they get away with that? The white person will tell him what game they are playing and promptly issue an invitation, to which your friend should say, I'm sorry, I'm an adult. You people are crazy. It will make the white person feel great and give them a story for years to come. I confess I have very little idea of what to say. Number three on the list, not a blog this time, a news story from the New Zealand Herald. Uh, very long URL because it's a story within the New Zealand Herald page, so I won't give the link, but you can search for it. The title of the story is Amnesty Asks Kiwi Olympians to Take Stand, and it was uh, it appeared online today. Amnesty International apparently is sending information packs to New Zealand Olympic athletes in the hope that they will speak out about human rights abuses in China when they go there to take part in the Olympics. Quoting from the story... Two months out from the Beijing Olympics, Amnesty International has written to Olympic athletes backgrounding its concerns about China. The pack tells of the stories of those who have suffered under the Chinese government, outlines Amnesty's position on the Olympics, suggests ways athletes can take action, and contains badges, bumper stickers, and tattoos. Athletes are being asked to speak out, write to those jailed by the Chinese regime, sign petitions and a banner, place an Amnesty sticker on their luggage or sports bag, 
and put their views on Amnesty's China campaign website. We would like Kiwi athletes... I've obviously had a typo here. I will read it as they typed it. We would like Kiwi athletes speak out as international athletes have, Amnesty Campaign's manager Margaret Taylor told NZPA, that's the New Zealand Press Association. New Zealanders have never shied away from speaking out for what is right. And later in the article, an Amnesty report revealed... A release this year said abuses, including the torture and ill-treatment of prisoners, use of the death penalty, censorship restrictions on assembly, and repression of minorities were still commonplace in China. Severe restrictions remained on freedom of religion, freedom and association in Tibet, while peaceful expressions of support for the Tibetan spiritual and political leader of the Dalai Lama were harshly punished, it said. I wish they'd mentioned some other things in there, and I know Amnesty International speaks about these things sometimes, but I wish they'd mentioned, for example, from persecutionblog.com. In September 2007, Chinese government officials closed Alumijang, I think that's right, Yimiti's business and accused him of using it as a cover-up for, quote, preaching Christianity among people of Uyghur, I'm probably not saying that one right, ethnicity. He was later arrested in January 2008 and accused of subversion of the national government and endangering national security because of the views that he espoused, a crime which, by the way, is punishable by death. From the afajournal.org, The persecuted church has long claimed a place in my heart, the author says, and I have been moved by stories of martyrdom and torture of believers around the world. Pastor Zhang Longliang one of China's leading house figures, house church figures, sorry, is a case in point. Pastor Zhang was arrested last December for practicing his Christian faith. The account of his arrest has been one of Voices of the Martyrs, VOM, top stories in recent months. The 53-year-old pastor had previously been in prison five times, a total of 12 years. His torture had included electric shock. His arrest was emblematic of a crackdown on China's house churches. Quote, as far as we know, Pastor Zhang is still in custody and still hasn't been able to have contact with his family, Todd Nettleton, Voice of the Martyrs, Director of News Services, told the AFA Journal. He has not been formally charged or tried at this time, as far as we know. One more from the BBC. Um, again, it's a long URL. It begins with a quote. They hung me up across an iron gate, and then they yanked the gate open, and my whole body lifted until my chest nearly split in two. I hung like that for four hours. That is how Peter Zhu, Zhu Yongzi, the founder of one of the largest religious movements in China, a Christian movement, by the way, described his treatment during one of five jail sessions on account of his belief in Christianity. End quote. But get this. Chinese authorities claim that there is religious freedom in China. I mean, it's in their constitution, so it must be true, right? Now, to be fair to those who tortured this man, one of the officers involved did say to him that he could still worship God, as the article goes on to say, quoting again, According to Mr. Zhu, who has now left China and lives in the U.S., it is against regulations to worship in groups. He did say, and this is where I'm speaking on behalf of the torturers, that one of his arresting officers even told him that he could only avoid breaking the law if he prayed under the covers in bed. So there you go, you can practice your religion. Now I've just plucked out three stories at random. You could Google and find dozens, maybe even hundreds more. Independent free Christian churches in China are literally against the law in practice. 
and those caught involved in them receive no mercy. Imprisonment, torture, and the death sentence are all fair game. So I agree with Amnesty International, although I wish they weren't so coy about referring to the Christian persecution, but in principle I agree with them. Given that New Zealand, the USA, the UK, and other places have such a lack of moral will that they will not stand up to China and say outright we will not come to your games because you're an evil and uncivilized state that doesn't recognize basic human rights, this option of going to the games and contributing to China's fame while also speaking out against its track record on human rights is not bad as a remotely distant second best, although I take a pretty dim view of the fact that anyone's going to the games at all. But that's all for me from this episode. Remember, questions, comments, or rants within reason, no rants are permitted to to compete with mine, are welcome. Email me, podcast at beretta-online dot com although you can be rest you can rest assured that your rants will not end you up in prison and for now it's so long from Say hello to my little friend